The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, and I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. David Ludwick. He is a practicing endocrinologist and researcher at Boston Children's Hospital, professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and professor of nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Ludwick's new book is Always Hungry, Conquering Cravings, Retrain Your Fat Cells, and Lose Weight Permanently. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Ludwick. Nice to have you on this morning. With you today. Great to have you here. Okay. Well, you've been described, I guess, by Time Magazine as the obesity warrior, <laughs> and you've rewritten the rules on weight loss, diet, and health, and you've done this in your book, Always Hungry. So tell us, what are the new rules? What do we need to know? Uh, because Okay. Well, uh, look, yeah, we've been told for 40, 50 years, that if you want to lose weight, just eat less fat, fewer calories, right? Fat has twice the calories of the other nutrients. If you don't want fat on your body, don't put it into your body. And you just have to take control of calorie balance. Calories in, calories out, eat less, move more. Um, we've all been doing that enthusiastically in the United States and increasingly around the world. Um, and what's happening to obesity rates? They keep going up. It's, you know, it sounds so simple. If you just eat less and move more, you'll lose weight. Why is it that so few people can do it? And unfortunately, even though almost nobody can do it, people get blamed for the problem when it fails. If it is such a simple idea, then there must be something the matter with you if you have a weight issue. Poor, poor discipline, willpower, motivation. My message is something that we've actually known in the research laboratory for almost a century, that body weight is more about your biology than your willpower, that there are aspects of our diet and our lifestyle that are driving our body weight set point up year after year. And simply trying to cut back calories creates a battle between mind and metabolism we're destined to lose. We need a new approach. We need to be thinking about body weight like we do about any other biological function, like body temperature or breathing. And if we do, we can put biology back on, on your side to lose weight. So I hear you saying that, first of all, we, are, we blame the victim. Uh, if you can't lose weight, it's something wrong with you because you don't have, you're not disciplined or we're not disciplined enough. Um, but what – now, you have to explain to us in layman's terms, what does that actually mean? How, right. You know, yeah. Okay, so what's the basic problem with weight gain? You know, we think it's just overeating. Um, but – in the, old, in, the, in the classic studies, the overfeeding studies, where research volunteers are brought in and given like 1,000 calories too many, of course they'll gain weight for the short term. But what happens? Their appetite and hunger 
vanishes, their metabolism speeds up in the body's attempt to get rid of those extra calories. People in the overfeeding studies are just as miserable as people in the starvation studies. And once they end, uh, the studies end, their body weight comes right back down to where it started. Um, so we are proposing something radical, that overeating doesn't make you fat, and not, not over the long term. It's the process of getting fat that makes you overeat. Okay, so that's kind of sounds messes with the mind a little bit. Think of it this way. The, the low-fat, very high-carbohydrate diet that we've been eating for 40 years has raised levels of the hormone insulin in our body much too much. Insulin is the ultimate fat cell fertilizer. When you have too much insulin, fat cells get programmed to grow. So they feast, the rest of the body starves. The fat cells are told to suck in all of the calories, too many calories in the bloodstream. So they start growing, but there aren't enough calories for the brain and the rest of the body. So the brain doesn't see too many calories in the fat cells. It sees too few in the bloodstream, and it does what it's supposed to do. It makes us hungry. We start craving foods, and it slows down metabolism. If you just cut back calories, you make that situation worse because the the, the basic problem is these fat cells on calorie storage overdrive. What we've got to do is not just cut back calories. In fact, we tell people to forget calories, but eat in a way that lowers the hormone insulin, calms something called chronic inflammation. When that happens, the fat cells open up and release these pent-up calories back into the bloodstream. Your brain says, now that feels good turns off hunger and craving centers, speeds up metabolism, and you begin to lose weight with your body's cooperation, not with your body kicking and screaming. Right, so, Dr. Ludwig, then it's what we eat, right? What you're saying is the actual foods that we eat that will help us to get thinner or to maintain our weight. But what I don't understand is that, let's say, over the past 30 to 40 years, we're getting, fat, as you say, fatter and fatter. Why weren't we fat in the 50s or early 60s, and why all of a sudden now, and we're not just fat, we're obese, you know, it's not like we're right. 20 pounds overweight, it's 200 or 100 pounds or right. 50 pounds overweight. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's the key question. You know, why, so there have always been people who are on the heavier side or on the lighter side, and of course, genetics have a lot to do with an individual's predisposition. You know, one person can seem to eat anything they want and never gain weight, although that doesn't mean they're healthy on the inside. Other people walk by a bakery and seem to gain a few pounds. But our genes can't explain the obesity epidemic. They haven't changed uh, over the last 40, 50 years. Something has triggered our bodies across the population, across the world, to year after year increase average body weight. You know, year after year, and that's not even stopping. That's continuing upward. And when did the obesity epidemic start in the United States? Well, right about the time we were told to cut back on fat in the late 1970s. We were worried about eating too much fat for heart disease. Um, and then the message generalized. Remember the first food guide pyramid in the United States. All fats were at the top to be consumed sparingly. 
the base were all of these carbohydrates, uh, grains and, and other starchy foods, six to 11 servings. As we started eating more of these processed carbohydrates, our insulin levels went higher than ever before. And that's just when the obesity epidemic kicked in. We've got to reverse that. We can't reverse that by just cutting back on calories. Maybe the last thing I'll say about this, um, you know, this approach, this calorie balance approach, which, you know, I think has done a lot more harm than good because it's, as we've discussed, we've, it's stigmatized people. Um, it's also actually impossible to follow. Nobody, not even an expert in nutrition, can guess their calorie balance, to, can estimate it to within... 350 calories a day. If you were off by that much in the same direction every day, after a few years, you could go from lean to massively obese. You know, calorie balance is a very imprecise science. And if it were so important to controlling body weight, how did people ever avoid massive swings in body weight before the very notion of the calorie was invented 100 years ago? Well, what do, can we, I want to fit this into this. What role, processed foods, for instance, um, and portion control, how does that fit into what you're talking about in terms of being able to lose weight or maintain weight or not gain weight? Well, yes, processed foods are critical, and most of the processed foods, these industrial food products we've been eating, are based on sugar and processed grains. These are the cheapest commodities. The food industry loves to use them. If you're going to take out fat... Like uh, a kid used to drink a glass of whole milk, for example, for a snack in the afternoon. You instead tell him to drink fat-free milk, and it tastes watery, and it's unsatisfying. So instead, they dump in sugar, and they call it chocolate or strawberry or vanilla milk. Now, that's a really bad trade-off, increasing um, the sugars and the starches for fats, you know, we, we used, so as we discussed, we used to think that cutting back on fat will actually lead to weight loss, and it doesn't. The latest systematic reviews suggest that higher fat diets are much more effective for weight control. They're also great for your heart. Uh, a study called Predimed, which was done in Spain, published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently, put 7,500 adults on either a low-fat diet or higher-fat diets with loads of nuts or olive oil. In fact, they gave one group a liter of olive oil a week. That's a huge amount of very high-fat food. They had to end the study early because heart disease rates dropped so fast in the higher-fat groups, it would have been unethical to keep the control group eating the low-fat diet. Interesting study, Dr. Ludwig, because, you know, as I understood it or I've heard from people in the industry, uh, the cereal industry, I guess, in, when was it in the, uh, I forgot what decade it was, but like in the 70s, decided that they want to sell more cereal. So then we were told that we couldn't, we shouldn't eat eggs because of the fat content and we're going to get a heart attack or if you've already had a heart attack, no more eggs. But it really had to do with the business of selling cereal rather than actual health and it so for what decades we've and I think it's been reversed now it's okay to eat eggs it's okay to eat the yolk it totally changed but that wasn't really based on good eating habits it was based on on uh, uh, really on the industry on making money 
You're right. Well, you know, the, so our, the, the program in, in our book, Always Hungry, uh, with a question mark, the program, the first part of the book looks at the science, this new science of body weight control, not based on consciously changing your calories, but rather creating a diet, and, and then there are other, some key life, lifestyle supports that go along with this, that create the right internal conditions for weight loss inside your body. And when that happens again, weight loss occurs naturally without trying to restrict calories. So the key of that is a rich, higher fat diet, which these are the luscious foods that have been traditionally eaten in a Mediterranean diet or was also eaten in the United States um, in the 50s and 60s before the low fat craze. So um, phase one in our program is 50% fat. Uh, It has we ask you for just two weeks to get rid of added sugar and grain products. But you don't really miss them with all of the luscious, rich, high-fat foods and savory proteins. So we're talking nuts and nut butters, full-fat dairy, uh, rich sauces and spreads, savory proteins, either you know, um, people, there are options for meat eaters or vegetarians. Uh, but it's also not a, you don't have to get rid of all carbohydrates either. It's not an Atkins-type very low carbohydrate diet. So we encourage the natural slow digesting carbohydrates like fruits, beans, legumes, non-starchy vegetables that keep insulin levels low. In phase two, you get to add back traditional whole kernel grains, the less processed ones, the more nutritious, the ones that are more gentle to blood sugar. And then in phase three, you can begin to add back a little bit of the processed carbs. You know, many people can handle some and you know, why not? You know, if you can hand, if your body can handle a little bit, go ahead. We, we believe in maximum results with minimum of deprivation, but you've got to track your own um, responses. Some people can handle them. Um, other people, any amount of those processed carbs are going to trigger a vicious cycle of hunger, craving, and weight gain. And it's just not going to be worth suffering from swings and hunger and, and, and weight gain. It's just not going to be the fleeting pleasure of these processed carbs won't be worth it. Yeah, well, I look at your diet, and I'm a thin person, and I eat pretty much what you recommend. I eat nuts for dessert. I eat avocados, and I often have people tell me, well, avocados are fattening, and I'm always, well, I've never known anybody who gained, got fat on avocados, but uh, that doesn't, but all of those, dark chocolate, you mentioned all of those kinds of things. However, what about, I mean, I go to, when I go to the grocery store, I tend to look to see what people are buying. I look in their carts, and most of them are just, as you, you know, throwing all the, the, all the kinds of things that you're describing that are not good for you into their carts, and that's what they're eating, and their kids are eating it, and it, it takes a whole, well, we have to read your book, obviously, but you really have to, we, our culture, impacts, obviously, on what we eat. It's very diff- And the availability of the kinds of foods that you're talking about. I mean, if you take a trip or a car trip and you go on the highway and you stop to get gas and you want to get food, there's very little food that you can buy for a snack or even for a lunch. Um, you know, maybe some, a rotten apple and a banana and that's it. And then the rest of the, the, the store is filled with all of the, you know, processed sugar, salts, the, you know the stuff that is not going to be good for us. So how absolutely, do we, what do you we, know, this is yeah. a, this is a really important point, and um, uh, it, it is the ultimate of ironies that you know we have an obesity epidemic that in the United States is 
costing hundreds of billions of dollars a year in healthcare costs, declining worker productivity. Um, you know, this is going to be threatening Medicare and Social Security um, if these costs are going up. And yet, we're um, uh, indult- we're we're creating an environment that encourages these extremely unhealthful cheap foods. It makes it makes the food industry. Uh, it's, these foods are irresistible to the food industry because they're so cheap and they can make so much money from them. But that doesn't have to be the case. And there are plenty of locations around the world where healthy, whole, nutritious, and delicious foods are accessible and affordable. Um, and we need to um, first, you know, we propose we reclaim our own health. We start learning you know, forgetting these incorrect messages that were, we were fed during the 70s, 80s, and 90s about fat is bad, um, bring our health, you know, reclaim our own health, start eating right, um, reducing our heart disease risk factors. And then we can all work together. That's the purpose of the epilogue of the book. Um, join forces to demand, that, uh, to demand policy changes where we're living and on a national and ultimately an international level so that the um, so that we can make uh, create an environment where the easy and convenient choices are also affordable um, and uh, two line items in my 10-point plan in the epilogue of the book is to vote with a ballot and vote with your fork you know one one thing is to elect um, uh, politicians who recognize the importance of food policy, that we, we must be creating um, guidelines for food production and agricultural subsidies and the like that support the public health, not just short-term industry profits. Are there, also, doctor, are there, Dr. Ludwig, are there yeah. politicians, national politicians out there who stand out now that we can, I mean, specific individuals that we can vote for? Well, you know, I think that's uh, the United States has uh, elections right now, and yeah. we've heard a lot of uh, a lot of different policies debated. But when was the last time you've heard food policy um, in any of the presidential debates? And yet, um, the quality of our food, the health of this generation of children, uh, is uh, as important as any. Um, policy issue that we would we would face, and if we don't make it front and center, um, the status quo and vested interests dominate. Um, the food industry gives tens of millions of dollars a year to politicians, um, and they're they're getting a lot of influence. But ultimately, the people can have influence um, in part by demanding of their elected officials that policies represent. Um, the long-term best interests uh, of the population. But the the other way to do that is to vote with your fork. Uh, Every time you decide what to buy at a supermarket or a farmer's market or at a restaurant, you're sending a powerful message to the food industry. They can make money from healthy things or unhealthy things. If we stop buying the junk, the processed industrial foods with a long list of ingredients we can't pronounce and start buying whole foods, that's going to automatically shift the behavior of the food industry, and that's going to reach all the way back to the farm. You know, if there's not right now, there's not enough farmland and cultivation for everybody in the United States to eat five fruits and vegetables a day, as are recommended. But if we start doing that, it's going to shift farm 
practices. More and more land is going to come out of these low-quality commodities like wheat, and they're going to go into produce and you know, vegetables and fruits and beans and nuts, much more nutritious and sustainable foods. Yeah. Well, hasn't Michelle Obama tried to do that in terms of good, healthy eating habits with children, for instance? That's been part of her initiative. Michelle Obama has been a great role model and it has put um, childhood obesity front and center, but she's one person and um, her campaign has had very little funding. It's been more of a bully pulpit than anything else. Um, we really need a, a grassroots campaign and I think that starts first by understanding the science um, of the new science of body weight regulation. It's not your fault. It's not just a matter of willpower. Um, the food industry loves the message that all calories are alike because it means they can market junk food and just say, all you have to do is run off those calories. Um, but you can't run off a bad diet. And so the first part of the book is to look at this new science, very exciting findings to show how the quality of what we eat, apart from the calories, affects our hormones, our metabolism, literally the expression of the, of the genes in our body. And that has everything to do with whether we're hungry or full, whether we're feeling good or badly, you know, whether we're showing increased heart disease risk factors, we're going to live a life free of those chronic diseases. So we have to understand the science. Part two, we put those principles into effect in our own life. And then the next step, the epilogue of the book focuses on how we can turn that knowledge outward and create a social change campaign, again, to make the healthy choice the easy choice. Well, your book then should be, and I am, and is it, I guess is my next question is, I mean, is, is this a book that one would introduce in school systems? Because you really do have to start with young people and their diets and their health and their understanding, as you say, of, of what uh, makes us healthy in terms of what we eat. So schools, middle schools, high schools, um, isn't, is, is that something that, this book is appropriate for, for the well, teachers? Well, the, the book is written for adults. Um, mm -hmm. And even though my background is as a pediatrician, uh, the book is written for the general public and adults. Uh, certainly anyone, uh, you know, a junior high or high school student could understand um, the material. Not, you know, not so much grade school kids, but the best way to reach kids is through the family. You know, if, if parents begin to incorporate these principles and change their own eating habits, the kids are going to change automatically for a variety of reasons. One is the power of modeling. There's nothing as powerful as parents doing it rather than saying it. Also, simply um, creating a bastion of protection in the home. If you don't bring in the industrial processed foods and the home is instead filled with not sort of healthy, tasteless cardboard food that you know, has been considered healthy in the past, you know, these fat-free, bland foods. But instead, we kids discover that healthy foods can be absolutely delicious. Like, we recommend dessert every night, although we re redefine it a little bit. Dark chocolate and roasted almonds or some, some fruit, you know, with real whipped cream. Now, these are much healthier uh, than the sugary stuff. And um, help children learn that they don't have to choose between delicious and nutritious. Well, I have a perfect example for you. I have a soon-to-be 93-year-old mother who eats exactly as you're describing it. 
and she is in perfect health. <laughs> She's a shining example of what you've been talking about for this last half hour. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, sounds like you've got some good genes. Absolutely, but uh, good eating habits also is what we're talking about. And we only have like a few minutes left, and we kind of we touched on this, but I just, what about this, we're talking about what, you know, parents have to be examples for their children and what they buy and bring into the house is is important in terms of what the kids eat. But what, and and I, um, I guess what I'm, what about portion control? I mean, I, I still get back to that too. I mean, I I live in New York City, go out to eat a lot, and every yeah. it seems to me in most places that I eat, go to eat at, uh, the portions are for at least two people, and right. this is supposed to be an individual portion or more. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think portion can. Yes, I mean, we we do need to have a, a general sense of what's an appropriate portion because if you're a if you're making dinner for the kids, for the family, you know, are you going to be making, um, you know, six ounces or something or six pounds of something? You know, that, that, there needs to be a, a general sense of that. But we, many of us have that intuitive sense, although some of that is inflated in our massive um, supersized environment. But my basic point is that we can't control our weight by controlling portions. If you cut back on calories, if you eat smaller portions – and uh, then what happens? You, your, your hunger starts, your body fights back. You get hungrier, and if you try to ignore it, your metabolism slows down. But if you eat the right quality of foods in the right proportions, you, know, you get the, the balances of protein, fat, and carbohydrate right, like we discuss in the book, then that um, automatically leads you to experience greater satiety, that sense of fullness after a meal. You don't get as hungry as soon. So the portions take care of themselves. We tell people our mantra is just forget calories, focus on food quality, and let your body do the rest. It will tell you, your body will tell you when it needs calories, and it'll tell you because you'll be hungry. Your, t- your body will tell you when it's had enough. In other words, don't full. fight what your body's telling you, which is what we have been doing when we're doing the calorie thing, we're all in, in low fats and uh, the, the low fat, low calorie diet. It, the pro, we're already disconnected from our bodies, and the low fat, low calorie diet makes that worse. It tells you ignore hunger. Hunger is one of the most primal biological signals we have. When you're hungry, it's your body saying, "I need fuel," and you can neglect that for a while but your body's going to fight back harder and harder. That's why almost nobody can keep the weight off on a low-calorie diet. Instead, we tell people to forget calories, eat until satisfied, but if you eat the right foods, then the body will go into a weight loss mode. It'll try to get rid of those extra calories, just like the participants in an overfeeding study. Once the study's ended, they just naturally eat less. Their metabolism speeds up. The body sheds that extra weight. Now, this may be slower than with a calorie-restricted diet, but what's the point of losing 30 pounds in 30 days, even if you could, if you spend the rest of the year starving and struggling to keep the weight off? Just, just a half a pound a week, you know, which is very gentle, if it's sustainable, will get you where you need to go to, to get eventually. And if you're not hungry... And if you're enjoying the food and feeling great, who cares if it takes a little longer if you can stay there? 
Very well said. We have to say goodbye. I want to mention the book again so that my audience can go and buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, I assume. Always Hungry, Conquer Cravings, Retrain Your Fat Cells, and Lose Weight Permanently. Dr. David Ludwig, who is Professor of Nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. And is there a website that we can go to as well, Doctor? Yes, thank you. It's doctor as in dr drdavidludwig.com, and I'm also on social media uh, at David Ludwig, MD. And the last thing I'll mention is we do have a Facebook uh, support uh, community around the book. We're in the last month already up to 2,000 people. Invite your listeners to join our community, exchange recipes, get support. It's called the um, Always Hungry Book Community on Facebook. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth reality, and 21st century archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Amanda Lenning, Ph.D., MSW, a fellow social worker. She's an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. She received her MSW from Bryn Mawr College and her Ph.D. in social welfare from the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, her research focuses on the effects of policies, programs, and neighborhood infrastructure on older adults' health, well-being, and the ability to age in place. And her book, 
addresses just those issues, creating aging-friendly communities. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Amanda. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to have you. Okay, so, well, you are a fellow social worker and, of course, as I mentioned, a Ph.D., uh, creating aging-friendly communities. What does that mean? I, mean? I know the aging population. I'm part of that, the baby boomers. Uh, uh-huh. We need special places to live in that will address our special needs, or what does that actually mean in layman's terms? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, what this book is about, this is a term that has become increasingly popular probably since, like, the early 2000s. And basically, it's the idea that, you know, the way that our existing communities are set up in general are not very aging friendly. And so the idea is thinking about how we can change the physical infrastructure, like transportation systems, housing, zoning, and also the social infrastructure, like volunteer opportunities, uh, social inclusion, social engagement, how we can adjust those things to better meet the needs of people as they age. Let's start with why they aren't friendly. Uh, <laughs> traditionally, I know in, let's say, my parents' generation, when people got older, uh, mm-hmm. they moved to Florida. <laughs> For instance, mm-hmm. they may have lived in the north, it's too cold, so they go to Florida and play golf or tennis or whatever they played. And yeah. that was sort of like the answer to their where they're going to live as they get older. Um, that's not where we're at right now. Uh, what what's different about this population and why, you know, what's not working for us? What, you know, in terms of we don't have aging friendly communities. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there still are people that are going to, you know, retire to Florida or Arizona. And, uh, but in the past there were also people who did remain in their same communities. I think probably what has changed is a number of things. One is, you know, in general, challenges, opportunities of our aging society are becoming more prominent, right? Because we know that the aging population is growing, um, especially with the aging of the baby boomers. So they just started turning 65 a few years ago. And for the next 15 years, we're going to have more and more older adults. Um, I think there's also this recognition that this idea of older adults as kind of one see how to put this, that there's a lot of variety among older adults, right? People want a lot of different options. So some people want to be able to move to Florida. Some people want to be able to stay in their exact same home. Some people might want to downsize and stay in their community. And some people might want to move closer to family members, move in with children. So I think part of this is just recognizing that older adults should have more choices in where they end up. I think we're seeing fewer people going into nursing homes. Um, Some people are always going to need to go into nursing homes, some sort of institutional environment, but we have now a lot more uh, different options in the community for people to stay in the community. Um, And, you know, I think it's something that's just become this idea of aging in place is something that people are paying more and more attention to, recognizing that where you stay for a long time, maybe where, where you raise your family, where you have social connections, it's wrapped up in your sense of identity and sense of meaning, and it's something that we should try to preserve for people if that's going to be the safest option for them. All right, so we're talking about aging in place, and mm-hmm. um, that's obviously, that's a good, uh, I guess, description of it. How do we age in place, as you say? And just being 65 or older doesn't uh-huh. mean that we all have the same uh, needs, which you described very well. So uh, we want choices, options, and to be able to live well 
within those choices or options, right? So um, let's talk about aging in place and what we need to do to be able to facilitate that for um, aging-friendly communities. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, I'm going to say a common theme that's going to come up a lot in this conversation <laughs> is variation, variability. Um, so, so one thing to think about, what do we need to age in place? That's really going to vary, first of all, in terms of the kind of needs and wants of the individual, right? So it depends on your physical functioning, your cognitive functioning, the different types of supports you have available. Are there family members who can help friends, neighbors? Um, what kind of environment do you want to be in? It depends on the community itself. So thinking about you know, an aging-friendly, I live in downtown Baltimore, for example, and what might make downtown Baltimore aging-friendly is going to be very different than what make, make, makes, uh, you know, my mom lives in suburban Philadelphia. What makes her community aging-friendly is going to be different than what makes my community aging-friendly. Okay, um, let's stop and, there because I think that's sure. great. Those are two different examples. What uh-huh. would be the differences, downtown Baltimore and, say, Philadelphia? What are those differences in to allow you to age in place or to allow her to age in place in those two different types of communities. Sure, yeah. So I think one thing that strikes me about, I can just give my own uh, neighborhood as an example. So um, I'm lucky enough, I live in a very walkable neighborhood. I live very close to restaurants. I live very close to a grocery store, to a Target, things like that, you know, to be able to get um, what you need. Uh, But one issue in my neighborhood is it's gone through gentrification, right? So there are some older members of the community, but a lot of people have left um, and a lot of younger people are living there now. So it's professionals in their 20s and 30s primarily moving in there. So then you have to think about what are the challenges for that neighborhood in terms of the social infrastructure, I think, for older adults, for them remaining connected because maybe people they knew for a long time are no longer living there. I also think, you know, the sidewalks are not very well maintained um, and all the houses, most of the houses are two or three story row homes. Most of them don't even have a bathroom on the first floor. So if you think about somebody being able to stay in their home, if they have any type of disability, it might become very difficult. I had knee surgery a couple years ago and learned that firsthand. It was very difficult <laughs> to get around my house. It was a little preview, you know. But um, yeah. so that's so, so those are some things I think about in my neighborhood. My mom lives in a suburban community. Um, the, really, the only place she can walk to within, say, a half mile is like a 7-Eleven and a Chinese restaurant. So it's very suburban. Uh, there's a bus stop at the end of our block, but I've never seen a bus stop there ever. And she's been living there for, you know, 25 years. Um, so she has to drive everywhere to get places. So one of the major challenges in a suburban area, which is designed around the car, is how we can help people get around if they're not able to drive a car. She can drive a car now, but looking in the future, what are some ways that we can make sure she can remain engaged in the community and get where she wants to go? And not just to a doctor's appointment or hospital visits, which are very important, but kind of those life-enhancing activities, um, you know, going to church, meeting up with friends, going out to dinner, things like that. So does that have to do with transportation? Because I think that's a huge problem because uh-huh. uh, we, suburbia, you know, that's where a lot of the baby boomers have grown up, and as you do, as you're describing, as you do get older, they're very isolating. Exactly, you don't want to just be able to go to, you know, get out just to go to the doctors or the dentist or to pick up your medication. So, 
Um, it, that's a real challenge, isn't it? Like, what is that? Does that have to do with transportation to help aging seniors or people who are aging to be able to get where they want to go? Um, how do you resolve that? What do you yeah. do? Yeah, I mean, I think transportation is a huge challenge. I think, you know, if you talk to, say, family caregivers about what types of tasks they tend to do for um, older family members who need their help, transportation is a big one. If you talk to a lot of community organizations that provide assistance to older adults, transportation is a huge thing that they do. So it's a really, really big challenge. Um, I think it's starting to think in a suburban area or a rural area some alternative ways to provide that transportation because a bus or a train is maybe not the most efficient way or the most cost-effective way when you have those lower, um, less dense areas, you know. So thinking about, um, you know, ways to have, you know, taxis involved. Um, you know, we mentioned in the book a little bit, like, is there a potential for things like Uber to, you know, improve the aging friendliness of a community, different rideshare programs, volunteer programs, um, and thinking of ways that, say, through policies, we can make it easier for people to volunteer to help people get around their community because there are, you know, things like insurance issues and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think transportation is one of the biggest challenges for being able to stay in your home, especially if you're in a rural area. And honestly, you know, there are a lot of urban areas that the public transportation is not particularly great either. So it's, it's a challenge across the board. Well, I'm noticing that there are many seniors or many uh, people that I see or I come in contact with who want to stay, and that's maybe the first example you gave, well, Baltimore is, what, a medium-sized city, but it could apply mm-hmm. to any medium-sized to large city, who want to stay in cities and uh, and want to stay in their their apartment or their brownstone, which really doesn't, as you say, you know, the bathroom's on the second floor and not on the uh-huh. first floor, or it's too expensive, um, so they kind of age out of their communities. Um, or the sidewalks, like you say, are, are not well kept. So what do we do in urban areas? I, I, I think that sometimes urban areas are easier to stay into because within a couple blocks, or you know, you usually have a grocery store, you have a pharmacy, you have a, you know, mm-hmm. you have all the things that you need very often within two or three blocks, um, which is not the case, say, in a suburban area. Um, not sure what I'm asking you in terms of question, but like yeah. <laughs> I went on from one thing to the next. But what do we do to help? Uh, I'm using the word um, having an aging friendly community, like in, in a city environment. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to think about again, going back to the theme of, of variation. Uh, one thing I'm really, you know, concerned about and interested in understanding more is this idea of aging in place versus being stuck in place. Um, And I did not come up with that term, but I think it really captures um, what's happening with some people. So, so yes, I think in some urban areas, particularly places that have, you know, been gentrified or are getting a lot of resources, et cetera, you might have a lot of things, you know, kind of at your fingertips within your neighborhood that you can access. But there are a significant proportion of of neighborhoods where there is not a grocery store, um, where maybe there's a corner store where things are very expensive, where there might not be, it might not be particularly safe, where there might not be a lot of 
you know, street life or social engagement, social capital, et cetera. So um, I think one thing we do raise in the book is this idea of aging-friendly communities. How much are aging-friendly communities just being started in places that are already well-resourced, whether in terms of financial resources or social resources, and how much are they paying attention to the needs of people who, who might have fewer financial resources, who might be socially isolated, who might be living in an environment that's not particularly um, supportive of their different needs, and, you know, how do we address that? So, you know, I've done research in Detroit, which, um, you know, Detroit has lost a significant proportion of its population. So there are some neighborhoods where there might be a block with only a couple houses are occupied, and some of those people are probably older adults. So, so what is the, the solution for them? That's still their home. They still have a connection to their home. Um, so I'm not sure if that's actually answering your question. I'm just kind of raising the, the complexity of this, that there's aging-friendly community sounds like this very, on its face value, a very simple concept, and then when you start digging down, it's actually really complex and, and challenging. Yeah, well, and, and obviously, and you cover all of that in your book. I mean, what stick, sort of is stick, resonating is like urban planning. Urban planning uh-huh. urban, is like really key. Yeah. Um, and, and we really have to consider it from, as you say, psychological, social. Uh, you know, we're dealing with sociology, psychology, demographics, all of those kinds of things. So when we're thinking mm-hmm. about building communities, then, then it, it, urban planning is key because, because of the aging population. So, uh, well, you're raising a lot of questions. We don't necessarily as I, have all the answers, but we, <laughs> right. yeah, we do need to ask those kinds of, of questions. Um, are there any examples of real, and I'm talking about urban planning, cities that yeah. are doing it right Hmm. Well, um, it might be easier for me to highlight. I know that there's some really interesting initiatives, aging-friendly initiatives going on in in different cities that, um, you know, so for example, I know a lot about what's happening with um, age-friendly Philadelphia. They've been around for um, quite some time. This is an initiative run by the Philadelphia Corporation for Aging, which is a local area agency on aging. So um, they've done some really interesting things, like they have an age-friendly park checklist, and they've been working with um, several groups, including the city, to um, make the the city's parks, and Philadelphia has a lot of parks across the city, uh, making them more age-friendly. So thinking about you know, restroom availability, bench availability, making sure that you can not only walk on paths, but also wheelchair roll on paths, for example. Um, Another interesting thing they're doing in Philadelphia is an organization called Gen Philly, which is trying to bring together professionals in their 20s, 30s, and 40s in all sorts of different sectors and professions. So not just people who are focusing on older adults, but also people who might be in public health or planning or other types of things that aren't necessarily thinking of aging. And the point of this organization is to connect everybody to each other and start thinking about what do you want the city to look like as you age and what are things that you can do in your professional life that would make that happen. So it's a really interesting model, and that's also being run out of the um, Area Agency on Aging. Um, another example is Portland, Oregon. Has, um, they are part of the AARP Network of Age-Friendly Cities, which is part of this larger network of World Health Organization age-friendly cities. 
and communities. And Portland's been involved for many, many years. And that's a partnership between Portland State University and a variety of different stakeholders in the community. And they're targeting a variety of things, um, public transportation, for example. And another example is New York City, which has been involved also in the AARPH friendly community um, network. And they've done things like age-friendly business certification, thinking a lot about how private businesses can get involved in making things better for older adults, easier for older adults to access. So there's a lot of interesting things going on in different places across the country yeah, well, and around the world. Several different, well, Philadelphia, New York City, and, or, and uh, Portland, Oregon. And mm-hmm. I visited Portland, Oregon a few years ago and probably uh-huh. wouldn't have realized that this was part of this, the AARP program. But yeah. uh, you really do notice that, you, for instance, just walking, the curbs are very, very low. People can, you can, uh-huh. you know, in terms of walking and making it easy to facilitate people who may have disabilities to walk. Uh-huh. Uh, they have, I don't know if they're called trolleys, but the buses are really easy to get, to get yeah. around in. Um, and and definitely, it kind of really stands out. I mean, that uh, this, this is an easy city to navigate, I guess is the word. But uh, so... NY, New York City, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and Portland, Oregon, right? Those are examples. Yeah, just examples. a few examples. Yeah. yeah. There's also a, there's an entire list of all the cities and towns that are participating on AARP's website. Um, so some of them are counties. Some of them are a little more rural. A lot of them are more like cities and towns. But there's a growing number of people participating in that. So in your book and in your research, um, mm-hmm. What do you think is the probably the most difficult issue that we have to tackle? I mean, is there a lot of resistance, let's say? Is there resistance politically to, to making these cities or making our cities aging-friendly communities? Um, you know, I would think everyone would be on the bandwagon for that, but uh-huh. not necessarily true because it takes money, right, and um, yeah. leadership and politics. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a number of challenges with this. I think, I think one thing that's an, a, a big challenge is the fact that this is, this is something that requires kind of, we talk about in the book, a collective impact approach so that it can't just be the area agency on AG doing this or it can't even just be the city planner doing this. You really need um, multi-sector, multidisciplinary approaches. You need a lot of different people to come to the table to make this happen. Um, and, you know, that can be a challenge because different disciplines and sectors, we have different languages, we have different priorities. Um, you know, some groups are paying more attention to older adults, some groups are paying um, have paid historically less attention to older adults. So I think that's that's just a huge challenge is getting people to talk to each other and kind of work together on this. I mean, I think another challenge is that, as you said, it does require resources to do this. And there are a number of, you know, things that cities are dealing with right now that also require resources. So, um, you know, thinking of, of ways to make some of these changes. I think... It, as a researcher, what I'm really interested in understanding better is how can cities get kind of the biggest bang for their buck? You know, how can we identify what are the really critical parts of an aging-friendly community? And probably that varies depending on the type of community that we're talking about. Um, so, 
So my goal in the future is to kind of provide more guidance on, you know, if you're a suburban community, what are maybe the top three things if you were going to try to make your community more aging friendly? Where would you want to target your efforts um, versus an urban community? And maybe, you know, thinking about somebody who you know, a city or town that's in different climates or has a different mix of the population. Um, I'm not sure if that's really answering your question, but... No, it you know, does a- answer the question, and as you're, it, it, you know, as you're describing it, I'm thinking, uh, well, you have, uh, whatever your political leaning is, you have all, uh, you have uh, three major candidates who are, who are right, or the, who should be... Um, Involved in uh, aging-friendly communities, from uh, Hillary to Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, right? Uh-huh. They all fall into this category. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, from what sixty-nine to seventy-three, or whatever the age group is. But anyway, so yeah. So I, I think though, what you're saying is you can't have. Um, well, you can, but it's it's not, it's not the best thing to just have separate kind of individual groups. Working to working on creating these communities, but you really need people and organizations to work together. I mean, for, in terms of you know people and, and professionals, but also in terms of the monies, it really has to be a concerted effort in each one of these communities or all the communities. Yeah, I mean, and I think just a, a couple other things too is that the involvement of you know the aging residents of the community is a really key part of this. Um, and that can be very challenging to make sure that you're getting the perspectives of a variety of older adults living in the community, not just the people that, you know, tend to participate the most in, in these kind of civic efforts. Um, I think also thinking about, you know, because it is complex and, you know, when I talk about a collective impact approach, I think it's also not being so overwhelmed by the scale of this to think, well, there's no point in even trying, right? So, yeah. you know, incremental changes are still going to be moving in, the pos- in a positive direction. It's just starting to make those changes, but not getting discouraged by the fact that this sounds like, well, you're talking about housing, you're talking about transportation, you're talking about zoning, you're talking about, you know, health care, um, social services, volunteer opportunities, um, social engagement type of things, intergenerational activities. It can sound like a lot. So it is, you know, still moving forward, even though there is a lot to be done, still making those steps towards change. Yeah, I think what you, I think that's really an important point. Kind of, I don't know if it's baby steps, but and and kind of maybe we only have a couple minutes left, but going full mm-hmm. circle. But I think one of the points you made in the beginning of the show the aging population are diverse. It's a diverse population in all yes. areas, whether it's socioeconomic, educationally, physically, and, you know, so all of that has to be addressed. And it's not just because people are aging and getting older, they have all the same needs. And Absolutely. I think sometimes, you know, we tend to, to think that not true. And when, so when you're developing or creating these aging-friendly communities, it's really key to to keep in mind, or that has to be part of the policy, the diversity. And it is a huge diversity in terms Absolutely. of what people, yeah. I mean, uh, to me, that's one of the, uh, the the key points, it would seem to me. Okay, a couple minutes left. Where should we go? I mean, uh, I mean, you gave us a lot of information today. <laughs> Creating Aging-Friendly Communities is the book. Uh, where is that available? Um, I know it's on Amazon, um, yeah. So, and I would assume that it, I'm not sure about bookstores, but I know that it is available on Amazon. 
Okay, so we can get it on Amazon. And do you have a website that uh, if we are interested in what you obviously uh, are doing, and we are, uh-huh. um, <laughs> where, <laughs> where could we could go and uh, what's your website that we can go to you know, or... Yeah, I don't have my media. own website. I do have a web page through the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Okay. Um, you know, just a, a faculty page that has some information about me, has a list of publications and things like that, and my contact information, everything is there. Terrific. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Amanda. Yeah, thank um, you. Yeah, Amanda Leaning. Lenning. Uh, <laughs> le- yeah. <laughs> I was determined to pronounce it wrong, right? Create aging-friendly communities. Um, yeah, thank you. We'll have you on the show again. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, great. Uh, we have to say goodbye. Uh, we've reached the end of the hour. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.